This is the sermon um, from Acts 6, verse 8, all the way through um, 8, 3, um, to be recorded today, Saturday, I guess we're about August 29th. Um, hello, family. Uh, I'd love to begin with, with a, a little history today. On October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther posted 95 theses on the door of the Wittenberg Church, and that was a common practice, um, similar to posting on the internet today for public debate. Luther was a devout Catholic monk, priest, um, scholar, and a prophetic voice, and he was saying, hey, the, the Spirit of God is doing something new. I've been reading Romans, Galatians in a fresh way, and I think I've discovered something uh, something that maybe the church has forgotten, this doctrine of uh, salvation by grace through faith alone. Um, let's talk about it. And that was essentially what, what he did that day. Well, within four years, Luther was branded as a heretic. He was considered an outlaw by the Holy Roman Empire and was uh, fleeing for his life. Now, I guess that's about 500 years ago. Today, most Catholic scholars... Uh, are thankful for Luther and wish that the church would have uh, listened to him and uh, seen him more as a reformer, um, but of course they didn't. And the, the history of the church is filled with stories like this of God's people, um, well-intentioned perhaps, rejecting um, God's prophets, God's messengers, uh, the people that God sends to the church to bring new wine, new reform, things like that. Well, one of the stories that, that we have is the one that we read here in um, the book of Acts, the story of Stephen's martyrdom. And of course, we can't go through it verse by verse today. It's far too long. But we do pick up the story in verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people, they couldn't withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. And so they in secretly instigated men who said, We've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. So Stephen is, uh, he's a deacon, but he's seen the apostles preach the gospel, this wonderful word of the risen Christ. And he continues to preach that in the temple gates and in the surroundings. And like the apostles, he's arrested. And at the beginning of Chapter 7, the high priest asks, are these things so? In other words, can you explain yourself? Are you really a heretic? Um, and then Stephen launches into, I think it's about the longest sermon we have in the Bible. It's 5% of the, of the entire book of Acts. And he doesn't seem to be able to finish it. It makes the, the religious authorities so upset that they, they murder him. They, they kill him before he even gets done. And the theme of the sermon is this, Israel, you have a history of rejecting prophets. You resist God when he says, I'm, I'm saying something new, and you're doing it again now. Well, Stephen begins his sermon by telling the story of God establishing Israel through Abraham, and that takes us up through chapter 7, verse 8. Then in verses 9 to 19, he tells the story of Joseph, there's a little hint here again of the rejection of Joseph. Uh, Joseph, as his brothers um, sell him into slavery when he uh, claims to have been sort of chosen by God to lead the family. Uh, Joseph has favor with the Pharaoh, 
brings his family down to Egypt. The years passed. Uh, Pharaoh changes. Israel becomes uh, out of favor with Pharaoh. And God raises up a deliverer named Moses. And Stephen devotes uh, verses 20 to 50 to the whole story of Moses, probably because the church saw Jesus as the new Moses. Uh, and, and, and Stephen pays special attention to how Israel rejected their prophet and deliverer. So there's one little scene where Moses defends an Israelite who's being beaten. He strikes down the Egyptian slave master. Moses thinks that the revolution is beginning, but uh, he said he, that he's come to deliver uh, Israel from slavery, but that doesn't happen. Verse 25, he supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they didn't understand. And then in verse 27, they say, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? So this theme continues to be worked out, that God sends deliverers, sends prophets, sends fresh words, and his people reject them. Uh, Stephen continues the story. He talks about how Moses met God in the burning bush, responds God to God's call to deliver Israel. Moses then is described as this Moses whom they rejected. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up a prophet like me from your brothers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him. And then Stephen goes on to tell another story about how Israel defied Moses, uh, bringing God's revelation uh, to, of how to worship, defying it, and then setting up a gold calf instead. And then he ends the Moses section with uh, the part that leads to his murder. Verse 51, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you've now betrayed and murdered. You who've received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Well, at this point, the leaders have heard enough. It is a harsh word. And here's how uh, the story ends, beginning in verse 54. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. 
Well, again, Stephen comes preaching the fresh word, pointing to the Messiah, calling people to see that Jesus is indeed the risen Christ. And like so many prophets before him, he is rejected and killed. Well, Jesus had told a parable very early in his ministry that kind of predicted this, and it talks about how hard it is um, to hear the fresh word of the prophets, um, to, to hear God speaking uh, in, in ways maybe that are unfamiliar to us or calling us to see things in new ways. Um, we find it in Luke 5, verse 37. Jesus said, No one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. Uh, wine bottles in the first century uh, in Palestine were made of animal skin. They were called wineskins. When you put new wine into them, it fermented and expanded. And a new wineskin would have been flexible and elastic and expanded with the new wine. But if you put the new wine into an old, dry, and flexible wineskin, it would shatter and burst. And so this is a very important um, teaching. Uh, Jesus says essentially that the old wineskin of the old covenant will not be a suitable container for the new wine of the gospel. And Stephen's martyrdom is an illustration of the truth of this parable. Stephen is preaching the new wine of the risen Christ, and the guardians, the keepers of the old wineskin, were simply not prepared to receive the new wine. Now let's, let's try to step back. Uh, long passage, lots going on there. Uh, I think the principle's pretty clear that uh, old wineskins aren't good for new wine, and that God's people have a history of resisting the Spirit, resisting the, the new so maybe just think about this personally for a moment. How do you respond when God wants to do something new in your life? Do you resist the new wine? Sometimes uh, the drama that's played out in martyrdom uh, in Stephen's life actually goes on inside of us, doesn't it? Um, God begins to pour the new wine and we want to experience freedom, and then all of a sudden the Pharisees in our head wake up and start picking up stones. And there's this enormous energy unleashed uh, inside of us, just resisting the new work of God in our hearts. So how open are you to change? Uh, are you resisting the new wine? What might you need to change? to be ready for new wine? What might you have to let go of or give up to stop doing or to release so you might be ready for new wine? Well, we can also think about this as a church family. Are we ready for new wine? How do we receive the fresh new things that God is doing Sandy and I have been watching The Last Dance, the documentary about Michael Jordan and the 96-97 Bulls, where they went on to win an unprecedented sixth national championship. And one of the themes in the documentary is how did they become so dominant? 
And one of the early episodes addresses this question. And uh, it talks about how this obscure assistant coach develops a kind of a revolutionary new strategy for offense called the triangle offense. I'm not a basketball player. I don't understand it. But according to the documentary, that was new. I actually have heard that Pat Summit went to at that time to meet and learn the system herself. Well, it's a radically new way of playing basketball. And the head coach at the time thinks it's a stupid idea. He is a guardian of the old ways, and uh, he, he resists it. Well, he eventually leaves, and Phil Jackson, the new coach, uh, embraces this new triangle offense, and the Bulls put it into practice and dominate the, the league for six seasons. And I've thought a lot about that as a, as a picture of how uh, organizations respond to change, how we respond to change. And, and I, I guess I'm wondering if God might show us a new way of playing the game in this transition. And that's, that's why prayer is so very, very important to us in this um, season. Uh, this week, we are going to send you a four-minute video where we look ahead to what's next for all souls. So be watching for that. Um, and please be watching the newsletter and reading it during the season. It's about the only way we have to keep in touch with you. You'll, you'll notice a strong emphasis on prayer. For example, one of the things that we're starting is we're asking each small group to prayer walk in the neighborhoods uh, around the new building and to record what they hear and feel and see. You'll be hearing more about that. Uh, I know some of you aren't in small groups, and so watch the newsletter. We'll have some uh, prayer walks for those of you that, that aren't in the group right now. And essentially what we're trying to do is keep our eyes open to try to discern what God might be saying to us. Um, what kind of new wine does God want to pour out through our neighborhood? What kind of containers do we need to be uh, to hold the new wine? Well, the, the point of Stephen's message is that God's people often resist the new wine. We reject God's prophets. So what, what might God be saying to the church today that we're not listening to? Uh, how do, uh, that's a really hard question, right? How do you know if a prophet is a, is a true prophet? Um, how do you know when you read a podcast or somebody shares something with you? Or um, how do you know it's from God and not somewhere else? You know, I, I'm afraid if I lived in first century Palestine, I might have been on the side of the Pharisees. Um, th there is a conservative impulse in religion um, and in Christianity that rightly resists um, innovation and newness for the sake of being new. Um, and we're told to pass on the, the, the faith uh, once delivered to the saints. I mean, we're not supposed to be inventing a lot of new stuff. Uh, Paul puts it bluntly in 1 Timothy 4, verse 1. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. So not everything that's new is true. Um, so there's this uh, tension. How do you hold on to the great tradition and at the same time be open to the new wine of the Spirit? Um, yeah, how could the church have remained true to the tradition 
but been open to listening to Martin Luther's fresh readings of Romans and Galatians. Um, how could the church in the 19th century been faithfully open to tradition, but uh, been open to the fresh voices that were challenging the, the, the older readings on slavery? How do you do that? Well, it's an important question. Many voices are challenging the church to change today. Um, but how do you discern which ones are prophetic or maybe better? Uh, how do you discern which parts of the message are truly prophetic? Now, our passage doesn't give us a direct answer, but I think there's some clues about how to discern uh, a prophetic word. Um, a couple of questions we can ask is, is the person bringing the word known and trusted by the community? Uh, Stephen has just been chosen as a deacon because he was known and loved by the community. Um, here's a second question. Is the word consistent with the broad trajectory of scriptural teaching? Uh, Stephen grounded his word in a lengthy exposition of the whole Hebrew scriptures, and he was saying Jesus is not a novelty. He's consistent. He's the climax of scripture. A third question is the person bringing the word known, at least in some degree, as a person full of the Spirit and of wisdom, full of grace and power? Um, that's how Stephen is described in uh, Acts 6, 4, and 8. And obviously, we don't want to set an impossible standard, but I, I think it is fair to ask, is the person bringing this word uh, a wise person, a gracious person? Is their life marked by the gentle power of the Spirit? Or have they left a wake of broken relationships uh, behind them? And then a fourth question is, how does the person bringing the word respond when the word is rejected? Uh, mature prophets understand that they are not responsible for what others do with the word they bring. They release it and trust God with the results. And Stephen suffers the ultimate rejection and dies in a manner remarkably similar to Christ, forgiving and loving his persecutors. Now, just briefly, uh, I want to... Um, can just explore one other question because here we're talking about prophets that bring um, bring words to the church from within the church, and that is the normal way prophecy functions. Um, but what what do we do like in a day today where there are many calling for change in um, the way we deal with with racial injustice and things like that um, that are not necessarily, uh, Christians or a part of the prophetic tradition or a part of our local church family. Um, I, I can't think, uh, and I, I spent some time trying to find this. I can't think of many places in the Bible that talk a lot about sort of, uh, prophets that aren't, you know, within the, the tradition of the church. So uh, I don't, I can't take us to a text that really addresses this question. Maybe there's one and I just can't think of it. But I, I do believe that God is sovereign and that God uses people who um, you know, may not be in a personal relationship with him through his son um, to bring truth to the church. Uh, in the Old Testament, you do see these uh, passages where the the nations around Israel are used um, to challenge and even chastise Israel. Um, there's a couple of places in Acts where Paul quotes the, the poetry of, 
of uh, pagan poets pointing to the to God. And so I would say yes, um, that we can be looking for uh, the the voice and listening for the voice of the Spirit in uh, the many voices today that are calling for you know all sorts of uh, change in society and and in the church, uh, whether those voices are Christian or not. I think we still should humbly listen, uh, even though that's not exactly uh, what's happening in the passage here. Stephen was was within the church. Well, why do the leaders respond so violently to the new wine? Because it's hard to change. The old ways do not give up their control on power easily, whether that's personally or uh, organizationally or even as a, as a society. It's just the way we work. So again, as we end, let's kind of make it more personal. Um, are you open to change? If the new wine is being poured in and around and through your life, are you willing to allow God to make you the kind of wineskin that can hold that? Um, something to think about this week. And could it be that this profound time of uh, transition and challenge might be a time when God is pouring new wine? Let me end with a quote from a contemporary writer, and I've, I've lost the name of it, but it's the name of the writer, but it's a great quote. Yearning for a new way will not produce it. Only ending the old way can do that. You cannot hold on to the old all the while declaring that you want something new. The old will defy the new. The old will deny the new. The old will decry the new. There is only one way to bring in the new. You must make room for it. Peace, friends.